This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, how have you been? Oh, I'm doing well. Great to see both of you. I am on the countdown to spring break. So I know both of you already had your spring breaks, but here for Chicago Public Schools, where our spring break is still always tied to Holy Week. So our spring break will be next week. And I know we're going to be talking about Holy Week later, but I'm getting ready to go someplace warm to Arizona. So I am counting down till Saturday when I get on a plane and get to have some R&R and hopefully some sunny guys. <laughs> So that's what's going on here. In addition, I've been sharing on social media with some folks that I agreed to be a judge for a certain aspect of a Catholic media organization uh, for books. And so it was a way for me to try to do some extra reading. And I am now on book number 14 that I need to finish before a Friday night. And I have been so enjoying being forced by this just to do some reading of some great Catholic books that are out there. I can't say more because of my perspective as a judge, but just know I have had my nose in a book for since I've last seen you. <laughs> About you, Dan, any travel plans for you? Or are you reading anything good? <laughs> oh, gosh, lots of things. Lots of traveling. Last week, I was in Connecticut at Sacred Heart University to give a lecture there and a really great time. I'm grateful. Shout out to the hosts there and the Office for Mission and Campus Ministry and Catholic Studies program. I had an opportunity to meet with some students and faculty before speaking. And as always, grateful to hear of folks who are listeners to the podcast. So shout out to all of our friends there in, in the Sacred Heart University community and beyond. And then, yeah, it's been an eventful week here as well. The Center for Spirituality that I direct here at St. Mary's College hosted some speakers, and there was a conference going on across the street at the University of Notre Dame on Catholic social teaching, and that brought 
sister Helen Prejean to give one of the keynote addresses. And of course, everybody knows she's amazing and did not disappoint in her her speaking. And we're preparing for a number of events here too at St. Mary's. So all of that with Holy Week very quickly approaching. So things are busy. Things are good. David, how are you? Are you also busy traveling and otherwise occupied with all things academic and liturgical? I am busy and I am getting ready to do a little bit of traveling. I am slated to give a paper at a conference up in Ottawa in May, and that'll be happening just before Loyola's graduation. So I'm going to get on a plane, go and give the paper, come back and pretty much turn right around and go to the auditorium where the graduation is going to be happening. So I'm excited about that that project and several other writing projects around the horizon for me. And also, I really love the wintertime, so I'm, I'm bittersweet about the cold going away, but I'm also glad to see more sunlight and glad to see the trees start to bud some leaves again and the grass returning and some early flowers beginning to bloom. So, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful time. Chicago is a great place to live, and me and my family are really enjoying the change of seasons but also, it, as you said, it's a very, very busy time. So I'm scrambling in some ways, but I'm very happy for the work that I get to do. But like you, Heidi, even though I've had my spring break at Loyola, we're getting ready for the kids to have their spring break through Chicago Public Schools. We're not planning to travel or anything like that. But I think that all of us, because we're everybody in the Dalt household is a little bit neurodivergent in one way or another. We're all looking for several days of spoon replenishment for those that use that kind of metric. We oftentimes not only get physically exhausted, but we also get socially exhausted in various ways. And so the chance to really just have some time together and to renew and refresh and to work on some things as a family that we really enjoy, we're all looking forward to that. And I know that's going to be a restorative time for you when you go out to Arizona. But I will say when you mentioned that you were traveling out there, the first thing that came to my mind was one of my favorite Public Enemy songs from back in the day by the time I get to Arizona. I know that's not what you're thinking of, but that's the soundtrack in my head right now. (laughs) Well, I'm just looking forward to a little R&R time with my family and a chance to take a little break from academic reading. I've got a bunch of novels on my my to-read list. So it's good for us to take time away from our work and to for rest and relaxation. Father Dan, have you had a chance to read any novels lately? That's really not something that comes onto my horizon until the summertime. No, I, I've been reading, actually, I picked up at the airport the, by the great Japanese novelist Murakami, a recently translated book called a Novelist as Vocation, which is a series of essays of his from 2015 that have relatively recently been translated. So it's not technically a novel, but it's about being a novelist. And it's interesting. I've always been a big fan of his work, more about his process of writing and his experience than his novels, than the novels themselves. He's also a long distance runner as a hobby. So that's always drawn me to him as well. So no, 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 no novels at the moment, but reading books about novelists by novelists. So maybe close enough. I also want to note, I just want to say to our Patreon supporters, we are so grateful for you. I have dropped the ball on getting in touch with some of our supporters who came in and are patiently awaiting some of the rewards that we've talked about. So I want to just say an on-air mea culpa, mea maxima culpa about that and to thank everyone for their patience and to give a shout out to some of our Patreon supporters, particularly Andrew DeLeon, Sean Quinn, Jerry Fagioga. 
and Barbara Spies, among others. We're just happy that, that you are sticking with us and that you show up and that you listen and that you tell others about the show. And we are so grateful for all of the support that we get from our listeners and from our friends, both near and far. Looking ahead to the episode today, we've got three topics. We're going to be talking about the end of the public health emergency the Biden administration has proposed for mid-May. We're going to be looking at a recent guidance document from the Committee on Doctrine from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and we're going to be talking about our preparations for Holy Week. So all of that is coming up on the program. Before we leave this segment, we also want to say at the time of this recording, we've just gotten some news about a tragedy happening in Nashville a mass shooting that has occurred at a school. We don't have many details about it yet, but just know that all that are affected are in our prayers. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dalt and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. Not with a bang, but a whimper. The Biden administration has recently announced that it will be shutting down its COVID response team in May of 2023. More than three dozen staff members have already been let go from the team at the time of this recording. The White House also announced that it intends to declare an end to the state of public health emergency under which the country has been operating for the past several years. The state of emergency has enabled the government to provide many Americans with COVID-19 tests, with treatments and vaccines at no charge, as well as offer enhanced social safety net benefits to help citizens cope with the pandemic and to minimize its impact. Jen Cates, senior vice president at the Kaiser Family Foundation, said, and I quote, the main thing people will notice under this change is they will have to start paying some money for things they didn't have to pay for during the emergency, end quote. The announcement from the White House came as a response to legislation proposed by Republican members of Congress to officially end the public health emergency that may be brought to the floor in the coming days. At present, the Food and Drug Administration has several emergency use authorizations for COVID-19 tests and vaccines, which have been decoupled from the declared state of emergency. Similarly, the 2023 fiscal package passed by Congress removed many of the protections granted under the public health emergency, particularly to Medicaid recipients. According to an analysis that the Department of Health and Human Services released last August, roughly 15 million current recipients stand to be disenrolled from Medicaid once these changes take effect. Since January 2020, the World Health Organization reports that the United States has had over 100 million confirmed cases of the COVID-19 infection, with over a million deaths resulting from those infections. As of mid-March, the Centers for Disease Control reports a current average of 250 to 300 deaths per day from COVID-19. That's a marked improvement from this time last year, but still means that we're averaging around two to 3,000 deaths per week, or roughly the same number of deaths that occurred in the attacks on 9-11. David, I know you and your family have been very cautious during the bulk of this pandemic. Now that it's coming to an end, at least uh, technically speaking, tell us a bit about what you're thinking about all of this. 
Well, I really appreciate you adding in that technically speaking, because even though the rhetoric is that the pandemic is over, and certainly that has been the social status for a number of months now, you and I, and hopefully our listeners know that we are no way out of the woods with regard to any of this. In fact, just in the past couple of days, the University of Texas has released a report, and it's one of many reports that have been coming out in the last two years, looking at the ways in which COVID really scrambles our DNA in some ways similar to the way that HIV scrambles our DNA and really gets at affecting our body's ability to not just to resist the SARS-CoV-2 virus, but in fact, it affects our ability for our immune systems to respond to a whole host of health threats. And they are tying this into something that is still not very well known, these health effects that are called long COVID, which is where a series of organ shutdowns or multiple systemic effects from COVID infection result. So it's not just simply that you get a flu-like sickness for a few days, but for some people, a significant number of the population affected by this, you get entire debilitating long-term illnesses or you get disablement. I follow a YouTuber goes by the handle of Physics Girl, and for the past couple of months, all of the loved ones around this YouTuber have been reporting about her health situation because she keeps having to go to the emergency room because she has organs shut down again and again happening to her as a result of her COVID infection. She can't work. She can't even get out of bed. And we are seeing more and more people who are affected by this in the long term. We still don't fully know what it is that we're dealing with. We don't fully know what the health effects are. And so I'm upset with the Biden administration for taking this step, but I also understand that they took this step as a response to an action by the Republican members of Congress who were trying to unilaterally just rip out protections and safety nets. And so it's an attempt to give a more measured response and a more measured step down than what the Republicans were offering. Nevertheless, it ties into and carries on a rhetoric about this thing being over and Listeners, as far as I'm concerned and as far as my family's concerned, it's not over. It's better, but it still is a threat to us, and we still don't know the full range of the threat. So that's my initial take, but I'd love to hear what you two think. Yeah, I went all those years without getting COVID, and then got it kind of towards the end, if there is an end, if there is really an end, as you say. And I've noticed in myself that since I had COVID, I was able to count on that immunity to be less cautious. So I have moved away from mask wearing. After, you know, this many years, although I still would wear a mask on a plane, I think. <laughs> um, but it's nice to have some parts of quote unquote normal life back. That said, I think most reasonable people know that this is a reality that we're going to have to live with going forward. If it's not this virus, it'll be another virus. Mike have come to accept mask wearing as something that just lots of people do around the world to prevent all kinds of diseases from the common cold to more seriously communicable ones. And I, for one, am trying to take those positive things forward. What's concerning to me is, as you mentioned in the topper for this piece, so many of the financial safety net government programs that were instituted during COVID are being pulled back now. And I get that there's some necessity for that, given that the numbers are not as high as they used to be. But we showed during that time how important those safety net programs, whether it was free food for families or upping people on Medicaid, how important those can be for 
people who are needy. And I had wished that one of the lessons learned from COVID was to keep those in going forward. And we'll continue to advocate for increased social safety net. Yeah, that's something that's on my mind, too. I'm glad you both brought it up. As I think about this kind of shift, a technical declaration, right? And that's essentially what a pandemic is, right? Experts in government and non-governmental agencies come to a consensus based on best practices and analysis and say this illness is meets these various criteria and therefore we're at this kind of category. So the fact that things really have changed. We're not in spring or summer or fall of 2020. We are in a post-vaccine era. We're at a time in which the majority of the human population has been exposed and most folks have been infected with this. Even like you, Heidi, same with me. I had three doses of the vaccine. And by the time that I finally came down with it myself, and I'm so grateful for that um, built up immunity from the vaccine and the miracle that is the technology that led to it, because, you know, it was not because of my otherwise healthy context, I was not at great risk for illness or danger. But I recognize that a lot of people are, and they are all the time with all kinds of illnesses and uh, diseases and viruses that are out there. I've, I've been a little bit frustrated, to be quite honest, with we, we ramped up, I think, fairly well, even though we didn't know very much in those early days. In fact, I was reminiscing with somebody just earlier this week, a colleague, and we were laughing about how many weeks and months people were washing their groceries from the grocery store, right? Or when, you know, the, what I call the right of Purell at the liturgy, when people are washing down pews and spraying things. And we realize it's not a, it's not a contact-based a spread. It's aspirational, so it has to go into the air and so forth. Nevertheless, we've come a long way. We know a lot more. And because we have these resources, it is a disease that isn't, generally speaking, either as virulent or as dangerous as it had been. That said, David's right. There are still populations and people who are more vulnerable. The thing that I think confuses me is that we have lots of other both seasonal and recurring and occasional diseases that run similar risks, but we don't have dashboards on the front page of the New York Times website. And so there is a sort of when do we decide that tracking 300 deaths per day from somebody who was also diagnosed with COVID-19 constitutes something that needs to be on the front page of the Times every day. It's not, I don't say that with any sort of disrespect to those who are ill or dying. That's important, but we don't put those statistics for other communicable diseases that aren't at this pandemic level as this disease is no longer. So I wonder about that. David, do you have thoughts about that yourself? Well, I take what you're saying. I'm thinking, as you were saying about, we don't necessarily want to continue putting this on the front page of the New York Times. I'm thinking about the distinction between our response mixed as it is to the COVID pandemic versus the AIDS pandemic that happened back in the 1980s and the sort of code of silence that hovered over that. But th there's another direction that I want to take this. Under this state of health emergency, we saw the support and the enrollment for Medicaid go up to 90 million participants a significant increase in the public health infrastructure and safety net. And I think that's a good thing generally. And I think that having more opportunities for people to get access to health care that is low or no cost is a direction as a nation that we should be going. What concerns me here in the return to business as usual, and I'm saying this as we're currently navigating some health things with our own family and looking at medical billing and things like that, we have a an actuarial culture in this country that is very willing to completely 
completely terminate care or remove care that has been established and working for chronically ill people. We, we do not understand in this culture how to treat the chronically ill, the disabled, everything like that. Enrolling 90 million people on Medicaid was a step in the right direction. Pulling that back and saying, and now we're no longer going to do this because, you know, fend for yourself. I think it's a step in the wrong direction. I totally agree. And that's the second thing I kind of wanted to get to is to pick up on what Heidi was saying about those medical and and social benefits that you rightly say, David, are being pulled back. I'm reminded of a few weeks back, I was was at a university to give a lecture and in the afternoon was a guest lecturer on a panel at a class. And we were talking about systemic racism. And one of the students had posed this question to the panel, well, what do you think about reparations? And why isn't that a case? Why isn't that an option? Why does that seem to be an issue? And this may seem like a non sequitur, but it's analogous, I think, to, to what we're discussing in terms of resources available to those who are disenfranchised, whether by class and finance or by race or by some other category. I use the example of the of the pandemic and the fact that 90 million people could be enrolled in Medicaid, that for a period of time, both under the Trump administration and in various sort of legislative efforts past that, they were literally sending checks to people in the mail to everybody. You know, people talk about basic living incomes and there have been some experiments, particularly in cities on the West Coast and elsewhere. And the excuse is always, well, we don't have the money for it. It will cost too much or this is unfair or excuse after excuse. And then when there's a crisis that affects everybody, regardless of class, gender, sex, identity and so forth. Oh, now there's money for everyone to to get resources to add people to the Medicaid roles and the like. So I, as insofar as I've heard both of you saying this, I totally agree that the rollback of this is the scandalous part to me. It's not the declaration that we're not in a pandemic anymore because because we're not. We there's still a disease that's deadly and affects people in different ways, but we are in a pandemic of income and medic Medicare access, medical access inequality. Yeah. And I think what we'll see in political discussions about that, people will revert to their you know, previous positions on social safety nets and the need for them and how much they should be funded by our government money. I think the other quote unquote lesson of the pandemic that we're going to see going forward and possibly in future health emergencies is how quickly even just basic things like how a virus works and how a vaccine works becomes politicized and polarizing in our in our current political culture. So that's a very negative outcome of this pandemic, that basic things that p- most people, Americans accepted, are now seen through a political lens and through, quote unquote, alternative facts that are not true. And when you're talking about healthcare, I mean, this is one time when you really want to trust the medical professionals. So that's a, that's a negative repercussion that I think we need to think about going forward. Well, and to pick up on that kind of denialism has metastasized through certain types of Catholic parishes. And so we can see that, that there's a certain identity formation of a certain type of conservative Catholic pastor or priest, a certain type of conservative Catholic priest, and a conservative type of Catholic congregant that ties in, bundles in a kind of set of Atkintists resistance to Pope Francis and a kind of anti-intellectualist resistance to science, data, and the vaccines. And all of this is, I think, concerning squalls on the horizon. None of it is currently acute the way that it was, say, around January 6th or whatever, but it is still there in the distance and it's brewing. And it's something that I think Catholics of good, well-formed conscience should be very concerned about. 
I, I think, you know, in the spirit, Heidi, you mentioned a moment ago, the quote unquote lessons learned. I think we are entering a phase where it'd be worthwhile because it's still in the sort of short term memory of the zeitgeist of the community of the of the world for us not to lose the opportunity to look back and say, how do we prevent something like this happening again? There will be new diseases. There are going to be new mutations of viruses that will go across the species borders and evolve and all of that. And so the infrastructure questions, the fact that we had so many issues that didn't directly relate to the disease, but ways to respond to it, I think this would be an opportune time for political leaders and institutional leaders, those in healthcare, those in other fields, to really debrief and to analyze what could we have done better? What can we take moving forward to prepare ourselves so that the next time it's not nearly as impactful and that so many million people don't have to die? Well, that makes me think of something that I first learned about when I was studying the history of Christianity when I went to seminary, and that was the story that we often tell ourselves that when the plagues came through Europe, the Christians walked in and they tended to the sick and they tended to the vulnerable and they tended to the poor. And I love that story. And I know that that's also part of the Franciscan tradition. I know that it's, you know, care for those that are chronically ill, terminally ill, That is part of our teaching as Catholics. That's what we're called to do. To the extent that we are able to step in and actually be a beacon for that kind of response, I think that we should take every single opportunity to do so. That's part of Catholic social teaching. It's also just part of being a good neighbor. It's part of what our scripture tells us in the story of the Good Samaritan and in Jesus healing the sick. And I think that we oftentimes make an idol of our comfort. And to the extent that we can step away from that idolization of our particular and our family's particular comfort and well-being and look to the common well-being of our community and those that are more distant from us, I think that we will be well served. And so, listeners, I know that your hearts are in that as well. So we thank you for being prayerfully aligned with us. We're going to leave this topic for now. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schwamp, and I'm here with Dan Herrera, Ava Doe. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Last week, on Monday, March 20th, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on Doctrine released a document titled, quote, Doctrinal Note on the Moral Limits to Technological Manipulation of the Human Body, end quote which calls for the refusal to provide gender-affirming care to those experiencing gender dysphoria. This is the latest statement from Catholic Church leaders opposing treatment of people seeking gender-affirming care from medical providers. Of dozens of individual bishops, dioceses, and Catholic institutions have issued their own anti-trans or, more broadly, anti-LGBTQ plus documents and policies, This is the first statement issued at a national level by a committee of the USCCB. In 2019, the Vatican's Congregation for Catholic Education published a document titled Male and Female, He Created Them. That document attacked so-called gender ideology and criticized inclusive practices and environments for the LGBTQ community, 
especially in Catholic educational context. The authors of the U.S. Bishop's document wrote, quote, any technological intervention that does not accord with the fundamental order of the human person as a unity of body and soul, including the sexual difference inscribed in the body, ultimately does not help, but rather harms the human person, end quote. The claim that medical and psychologically supervised gender-affirming treatment for trans person, quote, harms the human person, end quote, as the bishops allege, stands in stark contrast with the consensus of medical and psychological professionals. The document, which has only been published for a little more than a week, has received a great deal of criticism from theologians, ethicists, medical providers, and advocates for the LGBTQ community. Dan, you were one of the first to offer a critical assessment of the document within days of its publication. You wrote in your NCR column last week that, quote, a statement like this was coming was not a surprise, but its final scope and content was unknown even to those who had been aware of the document at various stages of its draft. Predictably, the result is nothing short of a disaster, theologically, scientifically, and pastorally, end quote. Tell us what you think of this text and why you think it's so disastrous. Well, to the first part of the question, if, if folks want to know what I think about it initially, they can read my NCR column. So that's a, you know, maybe that's an easy to a link there. On a more serious note, you know, something you said, Heidi, there toward the end of the intro about the criticism it's received from theologians and ethicists, medical providers and advocates for the LGBTQ plus community, both within and outside the church is really important. And I want to begin there that I may have been one of the first theologians, academics to to outline why this is a problematic text, why, as the headline says, it's disastrous, as I argued it is. It's disastrous primarily because it's going to be used as justification for denying people medical and psychologically informed treatment. And that causes greater harm to a community that is already marginalized, that is already at greater risk for violence and discrimination. And so I think on a moral level, a social level, there's there's some real concerns there. I think it's also striking that I've heard over the last week from dozens, in fact, dozens of theologians and ethicists, journalists and advocates and pastoral ministers who agree entirely with my analysis. I'm not claiming that everything about it is exactly right and perfect. In fact, a moral theologian and colleague of mine, Father James Bretsky, who wrote a piece for America Magazine's newsletter Outreach, posted on Twitter that he could quibble a little bit with maybe my use of the moral category, formal cooperation with evil. But even then, he was acknowledging like these are splitting hairs. And at the end of the day, the general consensus of the assessment is accurate. And that has been, I'm very happy to say, although I'm always open to reasonable engagement and back and forth, has been nearly universal. Where there has been pushback to me or defense of this document has come from more often than not anonymous trolls. It's been from ideologically driven folks on the alternative right. So I think of Bill Donahue and this Catholic League group or church militant or Catholic vote. It's the usual suspects, right, that that are pushing a certain kind of ideological culture warrior mentality that's rooted, I would say, in both ignorance and fear. And so those who are most supportive of the language and the message of this document that have been vocal about it and have gone after me and may continue to go after me, 
which I would not be surprised to see. And I don't mean just me, but those who are highlighting the real dangers of this kind of action and these sorts of statements, I believe are operating out of a place of ignorance, theologically, scientifically, and otherwise, and fear. And we can say more about that. But David, I know this is a topic that's near and dear to your heart and to your experience and observations as well. And you're a theologian. What are your takes on this? Well, I've got three initial ones. First, anecdotally, the people that I am in touch with in the LGBTQI community, particularly people that are transgender in in a variety of ways of identifying with that moniker, they all have just been really crushed by both the double whammy of the legislation that has been coming out in more than 40 states against trans persons, coupled with now suddenly the major arm of the United States bishops saying, we don't have your back and we're not going to step into the breach to protect your vulnerability, but rather we're going to add another way of kicking you while you're down. So that's piece number one. Piece number two is something that longtime listeners have heard me come back to again and again. This is a no about us without us error document because every single thing that is referenced in this document, in this guidance, has nothing to do with actually engaging with the medical literature, and it does not in any way engage with the experience of trans persons or their lived reality. And the third thing that I just want to bring up, since you asked about the kind of theological side of this, I really liked a move that you made in your recent column about this, Dan, where you talked about the pontifical biblical Commission's document on the interpretation of the Bible in the church. And you really point out, listen, one of the things that the Vatican itself and that we have been sort of given as a guidance document about how to look at the Bible tells us is we're supposed to move away from hyper-literalist, fundamentalist readings of the text, which means that we don't, for example, as Catholics, feel bound to believe in a literal seven-day creation of the cosmos. And in a similar fashion, we shouldn't— and I'm paraphrasing your point, but we shouldn't feel bound to a literal binary around gender that is talked about in the text. And when we have ample evidence saying that there is great extraordinary variety in terms of how human beings express themselves both physically at the chromosomal level, but also in terms of organs and in terms of identity around gender, we shouldn't be trying to simplify people, but rather we should be celebrating this variety. So, so those are some of my initial thoughts. I have to agree with you that the problem is that we are, you know, maintaining this hard line while the rest of the world, and especially the younger world, has moved moved on on this issue. I mean, there's so much that we don't know about sexuality, about um, transgenderism, but younger people just have so much more acceptance of this idea of fluidity and openness to, like you said, listening to the lived experience of the actual people themselves. I see it in my own kids who are teenagers and their friends. I see it in a younger staff at the NCR who are just more open in general to things that are regarding sexuality and, and, and issues around LGBTQ plus issues. So we as a church at our peril should think about how we move forward in this and to move forward with statements that are in some ways really not saying anything new because we already have the directives that say these surgeries or whatever are not supposed to be happening at Catholic hospitals. And it does cause people to step back and say, why is this happening now? And David, you mentioned the the many pieces of legislation in way too many states. 
for which this whole issue of transgenderism is becoming such a political hot button for the next election. You know, I don't have any knowledge that the release of this document was meant to be timed with all these many secular legislations out there, but it doesn't look good. And it makes me feel like we need to be defensive again about what our church is doing. And that's really misfortunate. Yeah. And I think there's so many levels to this. I think those are really good points. I I also would hearken back to the opening lines of my column. It's an expression that I've used time and again, which is just because something is new to you doesn't make it invented or a fad or novel. And I think that's a fallacy. It's an intellectual fallacy that just because this is uncomfortable or new information for church leaders or for, as you were saying, Heidi, in generational context, maybe older generations that didn't have the language to describe a reality that has existed as long as there have been humans. And this is where we have to rely not just on the medical and psychological developments, which are ongoing, as you rightly say, and the theological developments, which should be ongoing. That's the whole point of theology. We don't have the full mystery of human existence and creation and divinity figured out. I say in the column in passing, there's a reason it took centuries to articulate even the most basic doctrinal positions around who Jesus Christ was. We didn't figure that out in one fell swoop. It took centuries. You know, what I keep thinking about here, too, is an analogy with the bishop's document has pointed to is is oftentimes what I see on these sort of ideologically driven culture warrior sort of perspectives that, again, I think are rooted primarily in ignorance and fear. They, there's an analogy here to climate change, which is there is a universal scientific consensus about human role in exacerbating the global climate crisis. It is just not up for question, except you continue to see in certain news outlets and these sort of marginal alt-right sort of venues and in Twitter land, people point to maybe some random scientist that they find who is an exception to the rule to justify a fringe view that ultimately denies reality. That, I believe, is what's going on here. You can find a theologian. You can find somebody with credentials. You can find a medical professional who is going to be ideologically driven in this way and give you what you want to hear. But that's not what the overwhelming consensus of the fields are. I think it's important to emphasize this, that this document does not reflect the best in Catholic theological thinking. It does not reflect the best in the medical and psychological developments. It does not reflect, and this is the last point I make in the column, a pastoral tone that's necessary and reflects the magisterial teaching and model of ministry of Pope Francis, who calls for a a culture of encounter. Instead, people pick and choose the, I would say, the mishaps sometimes of Pope Francis, because I think the way that even when he talks about things like gender, he talks about sexual identity, and he says things like, who am I to judge? Those one-off things, those little phrases get pulled out of context and used for different ends instead of looking at the overarching 10-year experience of Pope Francis's ministry, including, as we saw in that outreach article by Father Jim Bretsky, the photo that America Magazine used when they published that was a photo that was circulated widely with a group of transgender folks who met Pope Francis personally after an audience. So he is not, I I don't think he supports the sort of sentiment that undergirds this sort of exclusionary and anti-trans statement. Just to pick up on that, when we look at things that have come out under the name of Pope Francis, the encyclicals over the last 10 years, there is a willingness to engage with scientific literature. There's a willingness to engage with secular documents and documentation. I think about his remarks to the United Nations where he's quoting back 
United Nations documents within his talk as a way of bolstering his moral position and showing that he really is in conversation with these wider communities and not just looking inward. And that's a real difference between that kind of approach and what we see here in this guidance document. It is simply the way I describe it sometimes is you have mirrored sunglasses on, but the mirrors are pointing inside instead of outside. So you're only looking back on yourself. The distinction that comes up for me here is we're seeing a document that is authoritarian rather than synodal. It is open to saying, we know better than you, vulnerable people, what your story is, and we're going to tell you what your story and your experience is, and we're not interested in hearing your experience of yourself at all. That is the opposite of the synodal path. The synodal path is open to an unexpected and surprising future, something that I think that some of the bishops, frankly, cannot stand the thought of. Yeah. And what's interesting, of course, this did come out of the Doctrine Committee, which is focused on doctrine and as such, I think represents the views of that committee and who they might have consulted, not necessarily the broader conference. It's unclear to me whether the whole document was voted on or not. What I'm struck by is at NCR, as part of our reporting, we were unable to confirm who exactly was consulted with in working on this document. But we could not get any confirmation that any actual trans people were spoken to. And that, you know, I get the doctrine is doctrine, but we should still be engaging with the people that we're speaking about. I would just point quickly an article that ran this week at NCR that wasn't about trans issues specifically, but was about the development of doctrine and the history of sexual ethics. It was written by someone who is an expert on this, Father James Keenan from Boston College. And it's very interesting. I learned so many things and goes quite a ways to explaining this obsession with issues you know, in the area of ethics, this obsession we have with sexual ethics and, and, and where some of those um, teachings come from. So check that out. We'll provide a link in the show notes. Yeah, I commend people to that article as well. You know, Jim Keenan is an expert in sexual medical ethics. As an expert in theological anthropology, which is my specialty, I'll say that one of the biggest problems with this document is a problem that also haunts a lot of contemporary attempts to make biomedical guidance from the perspective of the of church leadership, and that is that it has a fundamentally atrophied theological anthropology. Our understanding of the human person on which these directives are predicated is inadequate. It does not align with natural sciences. It's a for, it's oftentimes informed of very narrow sources, including neo-Thomistic sources. It's not even Thomas Aquinas. It's commentaries upon commentaries of Thomas, and it becomes really problematic and static. And the other thing, too, is the way that this document sourced, for instance, previous papal teaching from before the Second Vatican Council. So a lot of emphasis was placed on Pope Pius XII's reflections to medical experts in the early 20th century around developments at the cutting edge of medical technology. The conclusions that they come to are in direct opposition or at least do not align with what other medical ethicists have said for many years in scholarship, including in scholarship published by the Catholic Health Association. So I can't help but say as an expert, as a theologian, that this is inadequate at best. It's irresponsible at best. And I think going back to what we've been talking about and certainly, David, what you've been saying, there's a real danger here. And the thing I want to emphasize at the end of the day, even if this seems like it's an internecine battle among theologians and bishops and ethicists and commentators, what I want to draw our attention to is at the end of the day, this is about reality and real people's health, safety, and lives. This is not an abstraction. 
trans people exist, non-binary people exist, intersex people exist. And these sorts of statements, it sounds like maybe just an abstraction to many cisgender people or people who aren't paying attention to this. But this is dehumanizing. And I think that in and of itself is a moral problem. It's a part of sin. I think it's an issue that we need to address, and it's a Catholic Christian issue. One thing that we see, David, you talked about Scripture and its use and misuse. One thing we see consistently in all four canonical Gospels is that Jesus' whole ministry was about encounter and about relationship. And he turned absolutely nobody away. He didn't say, oh, you're a Samaritan woman. You're not part of my tribe. I don't, I'm not supposed to associate with you. You don't exist until you become a Jew. He doesn't do that with anybody, the crippled, the lame, the sinners, the public figures, the church leaders he calls hypocrites and the rest. And I think that is something that's being missed here. And I think it, it's a disservice to the people of God that, that our church leaders are not following Christ in this way. That's all I think I have to say about it. But I want to emphasize this is about reality. This isn't just an abstract argument. And I think that gets lost. And the only other thing that I'd add would be just to circle back to something that Heidi said a few moments ago. Longtime listeners will know that I'm preoccupied with the question of what the magisterium is and how it actually operates. And when the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops is making pronouncements, there are rules in place for how it gets to exercise the magisterium. But one of my criticisms of the USCCB for a long time now is it plays fast and loose with those rules where it will present something that, as Heidi said, may not have been voted on by all the bishops and may not actually be a reflection of the entire census fidelium of the bishops, to use a term that we brought into the conversation in our last episode. But instead, it is the kind of minority report of a a certain group of bishops that gets put out and is allowed to have the imprimatur of the entire conference and act with full magisterial authority, even though it may not be a document that has gone through all the processes to actually be magisterial teaching. And so anytime that happens, I think that Catholics are in a good position to be critical of what the bishops are saying. Because when we actually have hard and fast lines drawn about human life, we need to take that very seriously, and we need to move deliberately, and we need to not be excluding the voices of the people who are most affected. I mean, that's basic subsidiarity, right? And what I see instead oftentimes from the bishops is they tend to sweep out of the way any competition and make a unilateral pronouncement that has, as Dan was saying, incredibly damaging effects on real people who are really vulnerable. And yet they do it with a kind of fiat as if it's an afterthought. And I think that is very much something that can be criticized and should be dealt with with the highest level of skepticism. Well, it's clear that this is something that we're going to be continuing to talk about as maybe even the bishops will be continuing to talk about in their upcoming meeting. But for now, we'll take a break and you're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Father Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. 
We're approaching the end of Lent, with Holy Week beginning with Palm Sunday in a few days. This is, of course, the most sacred week in the liturgical year, and a very busy time for many who work in the Church. So let's check in about how Lent has been going for each of us, but also talk a bit about our plans for Holy Week. Heidi, what are your plans for Holy Week? Well, as I said earlier, my plans for Holy Week happen to coincide with spring break. And this is one of the things I dislike about our school district making spring break all during Holy Week. I appreciate I can always count on Good Friday being off for myself and my family or students and teachers, because I know not everybody gets Good Friday off anymore, given the pluralism in our country religiously. But on the other hand, to be on vacation when we have some other things planned, it always interferes with my desire to spend a lot of that time in church and focused on the importance of Holy Week. Before I give another comment, I want to give a quick shout out to two listeners who contacted me last week. I shared these emails with David and Dan as well, but Candice Fisher and Joan Wagabi, I don't know if I'm pronouncing your name correctly, but both of these listeners wrote to me last week and there were such beautiful letters thanking us for our conversation that we had about the Holy Spirit and for my sharing personally about what the Holy Spirit has meant in my life. And it really encourages me to speak a little bit more about my own personal spiritual journey and in the fact that this was very helpful to these listeners. So I'm happy to share some of that. And I guess I'll just say briefly that I'm approaching, our family is approaching the anniversary of the death of my nephew last from last year. And so it's kind of a particularly tough time of year as we're anticipating or not looking forward, but knowing that it's coming. And so the message of death and resurrection is so, it's the most important part of my faith. And I celebrate that all year long, but in a particular way with Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. So I'm very looking forward to Holy Week this week, even if it might mean a lot of tears for me during church services because really this is what I grasp onto when life is difficult. So how about you guys? What are your plans for Holy Week? I have a bit of a split triduum this year. And actually, Holy Week, now that I think about it, it's kind of split too. I'm going to be at a conference uh, in another part of the country as part of my responsibility in leadership at another university. And that, that coincides with Palm Sunday. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm going to be in this part of the country for Palm Sunday. I'm scheduled to preside and preach at Holy Thursday here in South Bend at a worship community that I assist at on a regular basis, and I'm looking forward to that. And then I'm going to spend the rest of the Triduum with my family, at least most of my family, my parents and and one of my brothers and his family are going to be visiting our great aunt and uncle, my mother's aunt and uncle. And we used to, as children, you talked about spring break coinciding with Easter or Holy Week. We went to Catholic schools our whole lives, and so that was always sort of put together. And it was very often that we would spend Holy Week with this aunt and uncle of my my mother's, my great aunt and uncle, with great fond memories. And I think there's this desire, especially after the pandemic, for the family to get together. It's been a long time since we've spent this time together, and my brother's kids will be off from school because of the holiday itself, so in, in their spring break. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm scheduled to preside at Easter liturgy at my aunt and uncle's community. So that's I'm looking forward to that. David, what's Holy Week looking like for you guys? Well, I will say, building on what we talked about in the last segment, we are the parents of two neurodivergent children, neither of whom specifically identifies along binaries of the gender spectrum. And so 
over the last few days, I've been having conversations specifically with my older child, but also my younger child has been involved in those as well, talking about the bishop's guidance document. And because my older child overheard my wife, Kira, and I discussing it and, and wanted to know more, and that has led to a lot of kind of vocal frustration on the part of particularly our older child, once again, with a church that looks at them and says, you don't count, we don't see you, you don't have a role here, and we don't really want you to participate in anything other than just being a body in the pew that gives us money. And so my interaction with Holy Week is largely guided by the response of my children, which means that I'm not going to be forcing them into a situation that they find threatening, which means that mostly we're going to be interfacing with Holy Week in a kind of tertiary way. We're going to be engaging with my wife's parents, their grandparents, who are Episcopalian, where there is a more welcoming and hospitable environment. And we're going to be having a lot of conversations and negotiating our right levels of comfort. And every person in the family has a right to voice their discomfort or their lack of willingness to participate because we're a consent-centric household. And so all of this is factoring in. But to me, and I, I want to just not present this as cynical, I want to say, to me, this is an exercise in synodality. It's an exercise in listening to people who are baptized Catholics, who are dissatisfied with our current church and their interface with our current parish, and who wish to find ways to engage with the church on their terms and to not have it be dictated to them how they're supposed to engage with the church. So to me, that's actually very hopeful. The fact that I have people who are Catholic in my household who feel comfortable saying the way that you are Catholic, Papa, may not be the way that I feel like being Catholic. And it has been an exercise for me in learning to step back from that kind of patriarchal authoritarianism that we are pushed into oftentimes, particularly me as a male head of the household, and to be able to shut up and sit down and listen and make space for these alternate realities of what it means for these other Catholics to be Catholic in my immediate presence. I can't help but think about what it is we actually commemorate in what we in the, in the Catholic tradition and in many of our fellow Christians refer to as Holy Week. You know, another way to talk about it is beginning on Palm Sunday, so-called Passion Sunday. The Latin word passio means to suffer. Compassion means to suffer with. And what is the suffering exactly that we're commemorating? On the one hand, it's a betrayal of Jesus. Judas often gets uh, short shrift as uh, the only person responsible, but there's institutional injustice that's playing out. There's religious injustice of Jesus's own co-religionists. There is imperial injustice when you talk about the state who formally executes an innocent person. And I think that this whole journey, I was thinking about it as I preached this past Sunday, and you have the story of Lazarus, right? And, I, and one of the things that I emphasized was so much, so much attention gets drawn to the miracle of this man being raised from the dead and not enough. I think the secondary kind of focus is in Jesus's weeping, right? This kind of sense of his humanity in terms of compassion, of suffering his friends and pain at the loss of a loved one. But the other thing that's missed is he takes two days before he even begins the journey. And part of that has to do with what has happened immediately before Jesus's return to Bethany, just two miles outside Jerusalem, which is that he's it's risky. He's being threatened. They tried to stone him as he left last time, and his disciples remind him of that. And I think he was scared. He was uncertain. He knew what was going to come before him, but it wasn't just the Garden of Gethsemane. It was even in that moment that he struggles, such that when he finally announces, 
let's go. Turns out to be too late. But when he goes, Thomas is quoted by John as saying, let's go to die with him. They knew what was coming. So that idea of knowing that the context is inhospitable, that people who you would expect from his own faith community, his own social community, his own friends who will betray him and deny him and misunderstand what his mission is about, makes me think about all those people who feel betrayed and denied and misunderstood in their own religious context, in their own nation, in their own spaces where, you know, I'm thinking of Sarah Polly, the great screenwriter and author, actor and director who who wrote and directed Women Talking, a very powerful movie that was nominated for Best Picture. I think she won for Best Screen Adaptation. Her memoir is called Run Toward the Danger. And I think that's exactly what Jesus does in that passage from John. And that's what we commemorate in Holy Week. It doesn't mean we all need to do that. But I think there's something there, as I'm hearing you talk, David, about the solidarity, even in the absence of the danger of feeling of being marginalized, the feeling of being misunderstood, even by one's own kind. Thank you for that, Jen. And David, you're challenging me a little bit on my parenting because I still force my kids to go to church. <laughs> because like I said, it's something we do as a family. I don't force them to pray. I don't force them to sing. I don't force them even to go to communion. And they have made choices that to practice their faith or lack of faith in ways that are different than mine. I am struck, though, by memories of mine as a child in my childhood of growing up in a church that was very focused on Easter and saying, we are an Easter people. That was part of our, I don't know if we have a parish mission statement or something like that. And that always stuck with me because, and I'm glad that your family is able to find a place to celebrate that in a way that works for your family, because I think that message is so needed in our world today. I know I personally need it for a variety of reasons. And so this chance to enter into the grief of the dying on Good Friday, which I always wanted to skip over that as a kid and even as an adult, so that you can have the experience of the new life that comes after after Easter. I'm also struck, you know, as a woman, I'm always excited about the gospel reading that emphasizes Mary Magdalene because of the role of the women in spreading good news. And then just a way that I've recently come to mark either Holy Week or even on Easter Sunday as if there's mom calling out the Jesus Christ Superstar movie that we have to watch. <laughs> <laughs> or God's Realm, maybe. So those are some of the less traditional ways that we celebrate in our house. I really like how you phrased that, Heidi. And what I want to stress both to you and to listeners everywhere is I'm not putting forth my family practice as a blueprint for anybody but my family. And this is what works for us what I have discovered doesn't work, particularly for my older child, is to say, you must, you are obligated, you have to. There's a real reaction formation that happens when that kind of pressure comes. And what I found instead is if I can sit down and listen and be in dialogue and uh, have the chance to say, wow, the experience of God that you're getting from this particular situation or the experience of God that you're getting from these particular leaders, that is not the same experience of God that I have gotten from my interactions with the church. But I want to hear more and let's continue to talk about it. I I am a person of deep faith, and that is something that is sometimes inexplicable to my children, who 
see a world very different from the one that has been shaped by me and my experiences. But from my own life, what I know is that nobody forced me into having a faith. I was instead brought into faith by a loving God who found ways to listen and speak such that I could hear. And I'm trusting that same God to be at work in the lives of my children and in the lives of our listeners. So I don't think of Catholicism as a one-size-fits-all enterprise. I think of it as a very local enterprise, one that sometimes is just a very small community of believers. And I think that's okay. I think that it's always functioned that way and that it's very healthy when it functions that way. I think that things get really dangerous when we try and make one-size-fits-all faith and belief. And feel free to push back against that. And again, I'm not saying that this is the way that anybody else has to view it, but in my 52 years of thinking about it, coming at it, this is where I've landed. That makes sense to me. So with that, we want to extend a note of solidarity and prayer to all of our listeners who may be celebrating Holy Week and the Triduum and Easter. And to those who listen who may not know that you're also in our prayers and in our hearts, we thank you for listening. Those who happen to be in the greater South Bend, Chicago, anywhere area, frankly, but can make their way to St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana in South Bend, please join us. Mark your calendar for April 27th at 7 o'clock p.m. in Rice Commons in the Student Center. You can see Heidi, David, and myself live as we record an episode of the Francis Effect podcast with a live audience. I keep saying live. Um, <laughs> So come and meet other listeners. Come and check out and see what it looks like when we do this every other week. We'd be delighted to see you and to be with you and to meet and greet you. So mark your calendar April 27th. More information to follow. And that will be one way that we can, as a community here at the Francis Effect, celebrate the Easter season together. So until then, we're wishing you all the best and we'll be back in two weeks. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.